Matthew Vines is the articulate young man who uh, wrote a book a number of years ago called God and the Gay Christian. And in this book, he chronicles and, and, and shares both his theological development and his personal development as he goes further into issues of recognizing that he's gay and where, where this goes and how this plays out, having grown up in an evangelical Presbyterian church. And he talks about in the very first page, page one of the book, he tells a story about how when he was in Sunday school as a kid, he learned about sharing basically the good news of Christ and about um, sharing the light of Christ. And he, he, go, he talks about the, you know, the little song that so many of us learned that this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. And how um, that was what he sang and what he felt and the way he was before he realized that he was gay. And then he talks about on the other side of that, how he just pauses for a moment to comment how he thinks people outside the church don't see that light coming from Christians um, in the LGBTQ community because of all the rancor in the church. And then he says this, and I want to quote him. This is still on page one. He says, he talks about his experience coming back to his church and, and evangelical churches at large. And he says, citing chapter and verse, evangelical Christians have typically offered a response like this to the gay believers in their midst. We love you. It's your sin we hate. This is a saying said by a lot of Christians, and it's oftentimes said in a different way, in, in lots of different contexts, not just this one, but in lots of contexts where people will say, love the sinner, hate the sin. That's what I want to talk about today. And we're doing this as part of this sermon series we've been doing. Today is actually the last day that we're in this sermon series. It's been five weeks, but we've been looking at these little pithy sayings, these little Christian cliches that people say and say often, but, but frequently have not really stopped to think about them. And really oftentimes, and the reason we've titled the whole series Unquestioned Answers is because really oftentimes we put these out there as answers or things we're going to say, but we haven't thought about them. And so we've been taking this time to go and look at each one and kind of dig into to what it's about and, wh and where they are. And today we're going to look at this one. And I want to thank the person who asked us to do this. This was originally not on the list, but we've, we asked for your input and somebody asked for this one. We start to look at this uh, question. I think the, the very first question I'm going to ask on this saying is where does it come from? Well, like all of the sayings we've done so far, it maybe some people think it sounds like something from the Bible, but it's not, it's not from the Bible. And it's not something Jesus ever said or anything like that. Although it does have ancient roots to where it comes from. Most people who go back and research this saying in the church will go back and um, quote St. Augustine writing in the fifth century. Cause he'll, he will say th something that's considered the root of it. This is in his, one of his letters writing in a conflict, um, letter 211. He says this, with love for mankind and hatred of sins, and then he goes on from there. And people have locked in on that, that it goes all the way back to St. Augustine saying that. And then actually the next really big development on it comes from Gandhi uh, writing in his autobiography in 1929. He says, hate the sin and not the sinner. So we get the sort of the next step on this comes from a non-Christian writing into this area as he, he was, would speak into Christian things. 
Hate the sin and not the sinner. And then I think you will, if you read around, you'll see people who, who will attribute it back to C.S. Lewis because C.S. Lewis included it in mere Christianity in, in a complicated kind of way because C.S. Lewis is talking about how he disregarded it for so long because he thought it was such a fine little turn of phrase. But then he realizes later that he himself is somebody who's, who owns this. Like he would say, I love myself, but I, but I hate my own sin. That's kind of what C.S. Lewis would say, but he popularized it in some ways because he included it um, in mere Christianity. The upshot of it is, it's not in the gospels. Jesus never said it. It's not in scripture, but it has, does have ancient roots. That's, that's what we can think about where it comes from. I think the next big question we would ask is maybe why do we say it? Why do people say it? And um, I saw a cartoon in the course of doing my research. Um, I know many of our viewers won't actually know who Calvin and Hobbes are, but it was, a, it was a comic strip with Calvin and Hobbes who's just picture this little boy who's got a play figure, but he's got in this, in this particular comic strip, his dad um, is clearly home from work in the car getting out of the car. And he sees Calvin over there holding up a sign that says, love the sinner, hate the sin. And the, and the dad saying, oh boy, or something like that. It's usually not said by the person who's seeking some kind of reprieve or some kind of help or some kind of whatever. It's usually not like that scenario. The scenario is usually somebody with really good intentions, myself included in the past, who wants to say something good and loving but who's in this tension of trying to figure out how do I hear we're meant to be loving and tolerant, but at the same time, we're trying not to disregard whatever it is in these various contexts that we consider not to be God's best for us. What, how do we hold that? So I think it's meant to, it's oftentimes some people grab on to, to address the internal tension that we can feel between these two different things. It's so much so that some of the academic psychologists have actually studied this. One can think of uh, one of the guys out there who's worked in this area is um, Dr. Gordon Hodson, who's re done research in this area. And part of what he says on it is that their conclusions are that it's to manage internal conflicts between wanting to be loving and tolerant but also wanting to oppose, in, in the case of their research, certain sexual sins with what they did with it. And he goes on to say that he thinks what it does is it enables some people to maintain their negative attitudes without feeling like they're a prejudiced person. But when we look at that phrase, what we can hear if we're willing to listen are how many people who will tell you that it's a hurtful phrase, that it hurts to hear that. And in the course of, of my research, I came across, for example, one person who's writing candidly about it. This is a guy who, whose first name is, is Chris. Chris said, talks about living life as a gay Christian back early on and bumping into parts of the evangelical church and different things. And he, he, this is what he would say about it. He said that on numerous occasions he would hear it. And he said that when you tell people you love them, but hate their sin, they don't really feel loved. All they hear is what comes after but. And I wonder for us, you know, you maybe heard that in the same context, but what about other contexts? You know, what if I um, turn to Chris and say, Chris, I love you, but I hate that you're a sloth. 
I can joke him about it because we get emails from him all the time. He, that's definitely not his issue. Or what if I turn to Eric and I say to Eric, I love you, but you're, I just hate that you're a self-centered pig. Of course, Eric is empathetic and caring to a fault to the people that, that I know and around him. I can say that to him, but I wonder for us when we begin to take that on board, if we can get some idea of how this phrase doesn't let us hear the word love, that we just hear everything after the but. And because of that, many people would say, it's, this is more, this is of all the ones we've done in these five weeks, I think this is the most complicated one. Because, because like all of them, there's truth, parts of it's truthful and part of it's got problems. And that's the way they all are. But this one is more complicated. But there are lots of people who would say, let's just drop this one because we, we're about love. And I'm, I'm gonna say more on this in a minute. We want people to hear the love and not just what comes after the but. This one author um, writing in this area says we ought to drop it. And he says, we ought to drop it, not just because it's insensitive, Rather, it's because God's approach to sin in the Bible is vastly richer and more hopeful than such a statement could ever convey. And what I want to do now is we want to go deeper. Let's look at this passage. Let's like, I mean, this, this pithy little cliche that we say, let's break it down a little bit more and just look at it in two pieces. This first piece that says, love the sinner. I want to focus on that. And then I want to turn the second part and focus on, but hate the sin. We start to look at this first part that says, love the sinner and begin to look at that. And I think the starting place to look at, to analyze that one is to look at Jesus for a minute. Jesus is perfect, sinless. He comes into the world on this mission, but we see him hanging out with sinners. He's no stranger to them. In fact, People are going to call him, you're a friend of sinners. Religious community that's going to say, don't get near these people. You shouldn't be near them. And Jesus is hanging out with the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and all the people that other parts of society and certainly the religious leaders are saying, don't get near. That's where Jesus is. And Paul later, when Paul's going to write about some of this, he's going to summarize and talk about how Jesus came amongst us in 1 Timothy Chapter one, he's going to say, the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm foremost. And Paul wants to end that passage by, by saying, I'm a chief sinner. I'm, I'm way up there. And we hear all this right here and we think, well, what's wrong with this saying? What, what, what could possibly be wrong with this first part of it? Jesus saying, or, or sorry, that other people sort of suggesting that maybe Jesus would embrace this saying to love the sinner. Well, I think we hold that, just put that on pause for a second. What did Jesus actually say about these kinds of things? Like what did Jesus actually say in commanding us to love? He tells us to love our neighbor. He never ever says love the sinner, although he, do, he does go all the way to the far end and says to love our enemies. Love our neighbor, love our enemies. And you get this huge spectrum. Love these people close to us, love all our neighbors, love anybody that's in need of help. Keep loving all the way over to the enemy, the person who's hurt us. But he never says in those words to love 
the sinner that way. And we don't know why he didn't say it, but I, th- I think it's okay to lean into that and maybe speculate a little bit because we know what he's like. We know his character. We know what he does teach. I wonder, so I want to just raise a few questions. I wonder if Jesus doesn't say that, those words, because first of all, he doesn't want to just identify a group sort of with an ontological identity of saying this group is sinners. Of course, it's all of us because that's sort of a label that seems like a permanent thing. It's sort of like how in marriage counseling, they would tell you, don't ever label your spouse permanently. Like you always do such and such because you want hope in it. You want want something more than that. So Jesus isn't just labeling them that way because it sounds like there's not hope. Or maybe it's because he doesn't want it to be an us versus them. Or maybe as Adam Hamilton says, it's not, it's redundant because neighbor includes sinner. We're all sinners. Or maybe it's because it leads us too much to wanting to condemn. Or maybe it's because it leans, helps us lean into being judgmental. That we begin to, to focus on other people's sins. Well, look at your sins and we disregard our own. And we want to be quick to judge and say, here's what you have wrong and not seeing the good or the progress or the steps being made or whatever else is going on because we're focused on the centerpiece of what it is. That we're meant to leave that behind. Jesus says, love your neighbor, full stop. He doesn't break it down that way into saying, calling out sinners. So maybe that's problematic. We're not gonna, that's not something Jesus is going to say. He didn't say that. And it's not really something he's going to say. So we got a little, the love part we get, but the rest of it is, is problematic for us. And then we turn to this next part, hate the sin. And we begin to think about that. Okay. Is that something Jesus would say? Hate the sin. Now, I think the first thing we we note on that is that Jesus really didn't use that word, right? I think you go look to the pages of scripture as it's translated for us. The only place you're really going to see that is clearly when Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. It's the moment where Jesus is talking to the would-be disciples who want to come and follow him. And he tells them, you need to hate your mom and your dad and your brothers and your sisters and all of this if you're going to follow me. But elsewhere, Jesus is going to communicate that we're to honor our mother and our father. He's going to take his lessons from Mary when he does his first miracle. Like it's clearly hyperbole, which probably where Jesus is just saying, get your priorities right. Put God's kingdom at the top of the list and then come and follow me kind of a thing. But that's the place where he uses the word hate and he uses it in that kind of context, but elsewhere he doesn't. And so we're left thinking, would he use the word? Would he endorse this statement? He didn't speak that way. And you think about all the different times, as we said before, Jesus was known as a friend of sinners when he's hanging out with these prostitutes and tax collectors and all the people that society wants to say are big notorious sinners to put on the side who are bound to, like all of us had thoughts that weren't becoming of what God wants to call us to, but never does Jesus ever stop and say, I really hate what you're saying or what you're thinking or what you're doing. He doesn't say that. Now, Jesus, in fairness, clearly does, at least in a couple places in Scripture, um, take a moment to put down sin, right? To, to, um, To say, like, this is not the way to go. 
One can think about John 8, where this woman is caught in adultery, and they ultimately are kind of setting up a trap for Jesus, but they haul her out. They caught her in the act. They pull her outside. You know, you can imagine the scene where she's there on the ground crying, sobbing. They've caught her. All these men are around her up close with their stones in their hands, ready to kill her under the law, and they want to trap Jesus. And they say, look, we've caught her in the act. Here she is. The law demands that she be killed. And oh, what I would give to know what happened next. Because Jesus writes something in the sand that none of us know what he wrote. I always personally have this vision that it was this Harry Potter kind of miracle where everybody looked down and could see exactly what their sin was. Whatever it is, Jesus wrote something in the sand and then he tells them whoever is sinless, go ahead and throw the first stone. And eventually they all drop it and they leave. And Jesus is all about loving that woman, seeing her dignity, hearing her, giving her mercy. But at the end of it, he says, go and don't sin anymore. He didn't lecture. He didn't go on. He didn't say hate. He didn't do all this, but he did say, that stuff's killing. Don't go to that place. That's not going to make you flourish. He's saying, go and don't do that again. He puts that down. Or we can think where he gets much harsher with religious leaders. And you can think about in Matthew 24, when, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, talking about the whitewashed, you're like whitewashed tombs, tombstones. You've got the outsides looking great. And you've got all this rot going on in the inside. And he there condemns sin in, in a very harsh way. But we don't ever get him saying anything close to this part of the saying about hate sin that way. That's not the way he functions. That's not the way we, what we see when, when the author I quoted earlier talks about a richer view of how God handles sin in scripture. I think we begin to see that. So then we begin to think, all right, I mean, sort of turn and come to the home stretch. Jesus is all about love in this way. His greatest command, his primary command, Principal command to us is to be about love. Love God with everything. Love your neighbors, yourself. Of course, implicit in that is to love yourself. And that's going to, for sure, I don't want to be misguided on this. That is going to at times call us in love to call out sin. It's going to require us when we see the marginalized and the powerless being abused or when there's abuse taking place, or there's different circumstances where to be silent would not be living into love. There are times when we have to call it out and we have to lean into our job of fighting evil. But it's not like putting out this saying to people who are loving God and trying to experience God and beginning to have these kinds of things. It's not meant to be that kind of thing. And we may begin to think then, well, how can we rewrite this phrase? What would be a way we could rewrite it? A couple people have taken shots at doing this. Um, There's one that I saw from an author named Mike Lowry. He says, rewrite it this way. Love the person, hate your own sin. He says, I don't have time to hate your sin. There are too many of you. Hating my sin is a full-time job. How about you hate your sin, I'll hate my sin, and let's just love each other. That's the way he rewrites it. And I want to, I want to just end with two stories on this and thinking about this. The first one comes from uh, Father Mike Schmidt, who tells this story um, in, in actually a, a, 
posting he did just in the last couple of weeks. But he, he talks about this woman he knows of named Stephanie. And Stephanie grew up in a, in a, in a Christian family. She went to a Christian elementary, maybe to a Christian private high school. And then she enters the workforce and she takes up her profession and she um, leans into that. She meets with some success and she continues to grow in that. In the course of doing that, Father Schmidt would say she, she begins to do social media and parts of her profession that are not consistent he would say, at least with the Christian message in very overt ways. But along the way, as she works on a project, she meets a mentor, a colleague, whose who name is Tony, who begins to um, spend time with her, and he invites her to go to church again. And she goes to church. And at some point, she even goes to church without Tony. And she puts it out on her social media, and she's got a pretty good following, and he talks about how certain people said, oh, that's great or whatever. But then some people said, well, you better not be taking communion because you, clearly you've got all these things wrong. And the question is, is that the way we want to be? We, we want to just encourage people to let the, this crack in their heart open and for God's love to come in. It's interesting, sort of the rest of the story is that Stephanie's full, full name is, or her name as we know her is Lady Gaga and Tony is Tony Bennett. But all the people who weighed in saying, don't do this. And she's back at attending church, at least some, but they're upset that she doesn't have the full picture the way they think it ought to be. And I want to end with one more story. This comes from the uh, autobiography of Billy Graham's oldest daughter, Gigi. She tells the story how in the late 1990s, I think it was 98, Time Magazine had um, an anniversary. I think it was their 75th anniversary. They had this huge banquet. They had all these famous people there who'd been person of the year and all that kind of stuff. Gorbachev is there. President Clinton and Hillary Clinton are there. Like all these hugely famous known people are there. But when this took place, it was shortly after Clinton had been impeached for obstructing justice and for perjury. But everybody was a buzz about Monica Lewinsky at the time. And when they arrived there, Billy Graham, his date for, the, date for the night is his daughter, Gigi. And he sees Bill Clinton and he gets up and he walks over to where Bill Clinton is and he gives him a, a big hug and clearly says something encouraging to him. And then he comes back to his seat. And Gigi tells the story that when they were later alone, she, she asked her father, you know, why I saw you give this big public hug to him and, and you said something encouraging to him. Why did you do that? And what did you say? And he told her that he knew that he, they needed some encouragement and some love. And he said, which I guess is something he said, he said often, but he, he said that um, he felt like they needed to be loved, but he went on to tell her this. He said, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict God's job to judge, it's our job to love. Love, full stop. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us. Before we're created, we're broken, sick, 
and sinful and you love us. You give us grace. You call us to a better place and a better future. Lord, help us take that into our hearts and to share it as we love full stop. In Jesus' name, amen.